0: Good afternoon. I'm Brad Stapleton. I'm a visiting research fellow in defense and foreign policy studies here at the Cato Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome you all here today for what I'm sure will be an interesting discussion of Michael Doyle's new book, The Question of Intervention, John Stuart Mill and the Responsibility to Protect. I'd also like to welcome those of you who are watching online at cato.org. And for those of you on Twitter, you can live tweet this event using hashtag CatoEvents. I'd also like to thank our amazing event staff here at Cato, who's done so much work behind the scenes to make this happen. Um, Now, the question of intervention is as important now as it ever has been. Twenty-five years ago, many observers anticipated that the end of the Cold War presaged a new era of peace and stability in international politics. Since then, however, the United States has intervened militarily in a succession of foreign conflicts. Iraq, Somalia... Bosnia, Haiti, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq again, Libya. In addition, the United States has opted also not to intervene in another of other conflicts, most notably Rwanda. And as we all know, over the past couple of years, the Obama administration has been resisting intense pressure both domestically and internationally to intervene in the civil war in Syria. Now, It thus seems likely that in the midst of ongoing international stability, instability, the United States is bound to encounter recurring temptation and pressure to intervene in foreign conflicts. That likelihood is problematic primarily because the international system is founded upon the concept of sovereignty. In essence, states are supposed to refrain from interfering in each other's domestic affairs. Over the past century, however, International laws and norms have emerged delineating circumstances in which states may intervene, even militarily, in the affairs of other sovereign states. Particularly over the past decade, the UN's institutionalization of the concept of the responsibility to protect has established that if sovereign states fail to protect their citizens from genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, the international community has a responsibility to intervene. In light of these evolving norms and recurring calls for the US to intervene abroad, the United States clearly needs better standards to determine when to intervene and when not to intervene abroad. And that is what Michael Doyle has sought to do in his book, The Question of Intervention, John Stuart Mill and the Responsibility to Protect. Building on Mill's essay, A Few Words on Non-Intervention, Doyle has prevented a sophisticated, nuanced analysis of the circumstances in which humanitarian and security considerations supersede the norm of state sovereignty and justify foreign intervention, as well as the responsibilities incumbent upon interveners. We're delighted to welcome Professor Doyle to present that analysis here at Cato. Now, to give you some background, Michael Doyle is Director of the Columbia Global Policy Initiative and University Professor at Columbia University. He is affiliated with the School of International and Public Affairs, the Department of Political Science, and the Law School. He is the recipient of two career awards from the American Political Science Association, and he has been elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, and the American Academy of Political and Social Science. In addition to his academic work, he has served as Assistant Secretary General and Special Advisor to United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan. And from 2006 to 2013, he served as an individual member and chair of the UN Democracy Fund. So please join me in welcoming Professor Doyle.
1: Brad, thank you very much for those very kind remarks and that that very sweet uh, introduction. Um, I really want to thank uh, the Cato Institute for inviting me here to speak. It it perhaps is no surprise that someone who's written a book on John Stuart Mill would be invited to the Cato Institute, but I well know uh, how much work is involved in uh, putting together an event like this, and I truly appreciate it. I want to also thank uh, Anne Marie Slaughter and Christopher Preble for agreeing to comment on the book. They have very busy schedules. Merely reading the book would be a a great source of pleasure to me. (laughs) The fact that they're also taking the time to come here and comment on it is is a real treat. Let me start on the question of non-intervention and when to override non-intervention or disregard intervention which is the theme of this book, The Question of Intervention. I want to start by uh, imagining that we all share three concerns. The first concern is a humanitarian commitment to try to save the lives of people around the world as a way to respect human dignity. The second is an appreciation of the value of national communal self-determination, that collectively people should have the right and the opportunity to shape their own lives. And thirdly is the principle of national security. We live in a dangerous world. Governments, states like our own, have a duty to their citizens to provide for their safety to the extent possible. You can't rely upon any international organization to do it. So those are the three principles I'd like to start with. Humanitarian protection, self-determination, and national security. Now, I suspect this is not wildly imagined principles for anyone here in this room. Uh, I think many of us share them. My question is, given those three principles, what should we make of intervention and non-intervention? That's where I'm starting from. My strategy in the book, The Question of Intervention, was to go back to the basics. Uh, The most famous, though not the first attempt to reconcile them, by the great 19th century British liberal philosopher John Stuart Mill. In his landmark essay, A Few Words on Non-Intervention, which he published in 1859 in Fraser's magazine. And I conveniently republish it in the back of the book to help everyone find it. In the book, I comment on his argument, I defend some, I criticize some, try to refine others. This is obviously a one-sided debate with John Stuart Mill. He died in 1873. But I found that despite the fact that these are cold pages I'm talking to, uh, rereading them time and time again lets me learn something new each time I do so. And I'm going to be doing four things in this brief comment this afternoon. One of them is to offer a somewhat new interpretation of that classic essay on non-intervention. Uh, I want to address, first of all, a puzzle, the first puzzle, as a way of interpreting this essay. And that is that Mill is a liberal. Why not, as a liberal, guarantee and enforce basic rights and democratic government and beneficent administration globally? Why not make sure that everybody, as that kind of a government. But he's going to argue against that. And the first puzzle is the non-intervention puzzle. Given those commitments to liberty and democracy, why not enforce them around the world? And he he rejects that. The second puzzle is given the fact that he provides what I think is a very strong argument for non-intervention as the basic default norm. How or why can that be overridden? or disregard it, given how strong the norm for non-intervention is. That's the second puzzle. I'm going to be focusing on when it's permissible to intervene, I should say, not when it's necessarily a good matter for national policy, because other issues can enter into that question, including domestic demands. Many Americans, for example, have asked, Why we're doing all sorts of nation building around the world when Flint, Michigan needs a bit of at least infrastructure building in order to improve its condition. That's a legitimate question. I'm mostly focused on when it's permissible, not necessarily the same thing as when it's the best national policy. The third thing I'm going to be doing is evaluating some of his his examples. I'm going to be examining his arguments and examples. And in the book, though not so much here this afternoon, I pretty severely question the use of some of the examples, whether the history really backs up uh, the the way in which he used them. Others, of course, I defend. And the last thing I do in the book is bring the question of intervention up to date by looking at the doctrine of the responsibility to protect, that Brad just referred to, and also uh, the question of peace building, though I'm not going to be talking about this afternoon. Let's start then at the beginning on Mill's philosophic foundations. Mill shares many of the values and assumptions of classic liberalism. He sees human beings as fundamentally uh, the same, sentient beings capable of experiencing pleasure, pain, good, and bad. Sympathy, he suggests, should lead us to want to promote to the extent we could through policy the greatest good of the greatest number, the famous utilitarian thesis. Uh, Mill, unlike some utilitarians, thinks that not all pleasures are the same. There are higher pleasures and lower pleasures. He famously said that poetry is better than pushpin. Pushpin is a 19th century game. It's sort of like Game Boy or something like that. Poetry is poetry, and poetry is better than pushpin. Politically, he derives two principles from this basic understanding of human equality and utility. Uh, The first is maximum equal liberty. Because each adult is best able to develop his or her potential, best judge of her own or his own interest, they should be free to do what they do as long as it does not interfere with the rights of others. Uh, The second is representative government for those decisions that have to be made collectively because they can't be made individually. The interest and and voice of the majority is better than the voice of the minority as a way to make those decisions. So two (laughs) bread and butter principles of democracy, maximum equal liberty and representative government. This again leads me, as I mentioned, to my first puzzle. One might think that given that very strong commitment to the value of liberty and the principles of democracy, that one might adopt what the US Constitution also adopts, which is in Article Four, Four, something called the Guarantee Clause. All states in the United States are guaranteed to have, that is, must have, a Republican, alt, small r, a form of government. And with our 14th Amendment, of course, all states have to provide equal protection of the laws for all persons who are in the US. Why not do that globally if you really believe in those principles the way that he genuinely does? Well, this is not what Mill argues for internationally. Instead, of course, he argues for non-intervention as a general rule among civilized countries. And he says that it's so for two very important reasons. The first is that imposing liberty good as it is, and democracy, good as it is, is radically inauthentic. That is, unless people choose it for themselves, what does it mean to say that they're acting democratically, that they're determining collectively their their form of government in life? Moreover, there's no really universal form of free government. Authentic freedom is the freedom to make up your own version of it. Let me give you a more concrete example. Think of the U.S. and the U.K., two card-carrying liberal democracies, if you ever had to find two. One of them, of course, has a hereditary head of state and has an established religion, and the other so far does not. So that's a very different world, equally legitimate, Uh, both of them making equivalently strong claims to liberty and democratic government. So, first of all, it would be inauthentic to attempt to impose liberty and democracy around the world. Second, for Mill and other liberals, it's a good thing. He also warns us that trying to do so would have bad consequences. And here's where his utilitarianism creeps back in. He says that if a free or democratic government is pulled out of, let's call it the knapsack of an invading army that is attempting to impose such a government, one established by force, there are three likely outcomes that come from that act of imposition. First of all, the local liberals, call them knapsack liberals, because they lack effective political support from below, will collapse as soon as the interveners leave. The only way you can establish a government, he thinks, is through what he calls arduous struggle, that is, sacrificing for it organizing for it, building support across a community so that the citizens are prepared to participate, pay taxes, risk their lives, if necessary, in an army or a police force. Without that, government cannot survive. And so if you try to just pull out some individuals from a knapsack, run up a flag, and call themselves a free independent government, the most likely outcome is they will collapse, according to Mill. The second thing he he hypothesizes, okay, you've brought in some liberals who claim to be good liberals and set them up. But what then happens is that they discover they have very little popular support, very little popular support. And they discover that the only way to stay in power or keep themselves alive is to act forcibly, despotically. So rather than having brought a free government, you've brought simply another autocracy and experienced all the cost of war through invasion. Thirdly, the interveners who pull out this knapsack good liberals and put them into power realize that they're so weak that they're likely to collapse and say to themselves, we can't allow our allies to fall apart. And so then the interveners never leave. And what you've created in those circumstances is an empire, not a free government. So those are the three. A new civil war, a new autocracy, an empire, he says, are the three likely consequences of trying to impose a free government on a country that's not been able to win it for itself. Now, I'm a political scientist, and so I did my little political science-y thing with the help of a very good graduate student named Camille Strauss-Kahn. When a professor says that he has the help of a graduate student, it means that he or she is really doing most of the scrambling work. So I should have mentioned that. Camille deserves a lot of credit. We looked at every intervention from 1815 to today. We counted 334 of them. They're all listed in the appendix of this book. Only 221 of those interventions were militarily successful. The others were repulsed at the the borders. Of those 221, 56 led to a new civil war after the intervention. 68 produced an autocracy that was worse than the previous regime. 146, remember this is the 19th century and early 20th century, led to a new empire. Only 26 of the ones we looked at produced a free, independent, more rights-respecting, participatory state. Now, if there are any political scientists or historians in the room, you'll know that the world is much more complicated than that. Not all of these were motivated by searching for freedom, these interventions. We're just looking for the cross-border use of military force to come between a government and its citizens. So you'd have to pull back somewhat and say that these figures are rough and ready. Most interventions are mixed in their motives rather than singly derived. Uh, And for all those reasons, one has to be uh, very careful making this. But I think there's a default that he makes a case for, that non-intervention is dangerous, it's inauthentic, does more harm than good. The second puzzle, and I'm going to go over this very quickly, is that given these strong arguments for non-intervention, he says we should intervene in two circumstances, when non-intervention needs to be overridden, for the sake of national security or humanitarian rescue, or has to be disregarded because the assumptions that a government is capable of determining its own future through arduous struggle don't hold. Let me just give you a couple of examples of the disregard and and, uh, overriding before I wrap up with a last remark on R2P. Think of a situation of an ethnic conflict within a country where there is a majority that is 80% of the population and a minority that's 20% of the population. Mill's normal prescription is you should allow the locals to struggle, including if necessary by force, to determine what should rule in that country. But if you've got a fight between 80 and 20, that doesn't qualify as a fair fight. And if the 80 goes after the 20 with murderous intent, what you're seeing instead is simply a massacre, not a genuine struggle. And under those circumstances, Mill says, it might be legitimate to step in to assist the weaker side, not to rule the larger side, but to separate, to secede, become independent, and have its own government that it can then determine on its own, as the 80% majority do for themselves. What he has in mind, he's writing in uh, 1859, of course, is the separation of the US from the UK. That's in his mind. What he has more directly in mind is a more recent event is Hungary's rebellion against the Austrian empire. And he thinks the Hungarians had a right to form their own government and not be dominated by the Austrian empire. Whether it would have been prudent to do so, he leaves problematic. But he says it would have been legitimate for the Austrians to develop their own empire. And he talks about a few other cases. Let me skip. I give a few more examples. In the outline that I passed out, you can see others that I'd be happy to address in the question period. Let me skip to, and I'm also skipping over Mill's most notorious example, where he attempts to justify benign imperialism. He gets his discussion of India radically wrong. India was a lot more capable of governing itself than Mill thought it was, though it had many internal conflicts. But let me skip to the other kind of exception, and that is overriding when humanitarian concerns and national security requires that you override the default norm of non-intervention. Think of the following. What about your citizens who might be being oppressed within a foreign government? Uh, Some foreign government seizes them and threatens their lives. Do you have to say, that's a foreign matter, there's nothing we can do about it? They're your citizens. There are historical examples in the U.S. and U.K. of this kind of a rescue. Some done well, some done poorly. Uh, There's one very famous one recent, the raid on Atebe by the Israelis, where in 1976 they intervened in Uganda to try to free their citizens who were being threatened by by murderous uh, consequences. And they did so in a way that was quite surgical. They didn't stay around to overthrow what was otherwise the horrible regime of Idi Amin. They went in and got their own citizens out. It's a case of a, of a legitimate overriding of the sovereign borders of Uganda to rescue one's own citizens. So that's, that's one example. Another example is in a, uh, a situation where you've been fighting a defensive war. You've been successful by pushing the invaders, the aggressors, armies back to the border. Mill says, you don't have to stop at the border. Instead, you can keep going if leaving that aggressive regime in place would leave what he calls a standing menace that would come back to threaten you again in the very near future. He's talking about Napoleon, who was left too close to Europe after 1814, came back and had to be fought all over again, leading to the Battle of Waterloo. And then they packed him all the way down to the South Atlantic, to St. Helena. Our own examples are post-World War II in Nazi Germany. Should the Allies have stopped at the Rhine? Should Should Japan have been reconstructed? These are the questions he's raising for us. But let me conclude with some quick remarks on humanitarian intervention. Uh, A big issue, needless to say, today. Mill gives a couple of obscure examples where he talks about a protracted war that is having no result. It's just grinding down ordinary people, the small farmers, the inhabitants of the towns. And at some point, he says, it would be legitimate to step in. In our own day, this raises the question of responsibility to protect a doctrine announced at the UN that argued for a responsibility to stop genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. This was an important step forward, not a change in international law, but nonetheless a move towards a better doctrine of when when to act, a license and a leash. It licensed the Security Council to act beyond a narrow definition of international security, a leash saying only for these particular circumstances should the Security Council get involved. It was used, as you would perhaps recall, to justify the intervention in Libya in 2011. I've looked into that in some depth, though I'm not a Libya specialist. In the end, I found uh, it was, it's problematic in the way that anyone would observe looking at what's happened in Libya today. The information was deeply confusing on which the decision was made. We need to do better in the future and I should declare an interest, I'm working here with the government of Brazil, the foreign ministry, on responsibility while protecting to try to develop better standards to rescue this very important doctrine so if it becomes relevant again, and needless to say, you you have to get the Security Council to agree, it will be better used. Looking at the standards to be employed, accountability in the middle of the operation. Various forces, Qatar and others, were operating outside of the mandate that was given, and importantly, after the, after the war, the postbellum reconstruction, so that unlike what happened in Libya, which was a free-for-all in 2000, late 2011, 2012, you would get a more concerted effort to help them rebuild a unified government. That, I think, is necessary. Put that all together, and we have, I think, a continually relevant standard. Uh, With the R2P doctrine and with intervention there's a lot we should learn from mill most importantly the default has to be non-intervention if you're a liberal Uh, Second of all it can sometimes be overridden or disregarded in rare circumstances But when that's done you take upon yourself the consequences Including the likelihood that many of these operations could go wrong one has a responsibility to try to prevent that uh, and most importantly in that regard, one needs to find ways to make sure that self-determination becomes the reality, even if it has to be temporarily abrogated for the sake of an intervention. Let me stop here. I look forward to the comments and uh, of my colleagues here and questions from the audience. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Michael. Um, we're fortunate to have two excellent discussants here who have read and are prepared to comment on the book. Um, first, Anne Marie Slaughter. Uh, Anne Marie is currently the President and CEO of New America. She is also the Bert G. Kerstetter University Professor Emerita of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. From 2009 to 2011, she served as Director of Policy Planning at the State Department. Prior to her government service, Dr. Slaughter was the Dean of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs from 2002 to 2009 and the J. Sinclair Armstrong Professor of International Foreign and Comparative Law at Harvard Law School from 1994 to 2002. Um, We also have Chris Preble. Christopher Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. In that capacity, he is currently writing a book entitled A Guide to Foreign Policy. His previous books include The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free, and John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap. In addition to his work here at Cato, Preble teaches U.S. foreign policy at the University of California Washington Center. Before joining Cato in February 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud University and Temple University. Preble was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served aboard the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. Um, so now let me turn it over to Anne-Marie Slaughter.
2: Thank you. And I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, something you left out of my biography but that I would only tell all of you because Michael Doyle's the youngest grandfather I've ever seen and I Emphasize grandfather because he dedicates his book to his grandson. Uh, so, I w- I, given that background, I think I can say what another piece of my biography is that. Michael Doyle taught me a policy task force in nineteen seventy nine on policy towards Zimbabwe uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, and uh, I've been following him around ever since uh, so it's it really when when I got this invitation, I thought, of course uh, i I would want to do this because of the subject matter, uh, which I I have thought a great deal about and am still thinking about in the same way that Michael is, uh, but also because uh, Michael's work has been enormously uh, important in exactly the way this book is, which is to, uh, interrogate import issues of enormous practical significance from a historically, and, uh, historically informed perspective and one informed by uh, political theory, the classics uh, to contemporary. So I, I'm very honored to have a chance uh, to uh, talk about the book. And I'm gonna divide my remarks into five categories, each will be short, <laughs> I assure you. Uh, things I like, things I disagree with, things I question, uh, things that I think are missing, and then what I think is the most important uh, part of the book. And uh, Michael, I'm not going to expect you to respond to all of these, but it, it should inform our our discussion. So I think the the most important contribution. Well, let me let me start by saying what I think I I like the very much in the book is that it presents the current effort to formulate hum- when humanitarian intervention is permissible as both a license and a leash. Uh, and we just heard Michael say that, and he points out in the book, he goes through the history of uh, of how, you know, we, have a, we had a doctrine of strict non-intervention, often violated, but nevertheless, uh, strict non-intervention in the Cold War, of course, because whatever we did, the Soviets did too. So there was a clear reason for us both to adhere to a formal doctrine on non-intervention, even if we violated it. And Michael then describes, after the Cold War ends in the 1990s, both in practice and in the uh, International Convention, uh, Commission looking into the intervention in Kosovo and the International Commission on Intervention and in State Sovereignty, both of those documents, which 100 years from now, 200 years from now, will be seen as the equivalent as, as the sort of prehistory of the Treaty of Westphalia – both of those documents have much broader reasons for intervention, like gross human rights abuses. Uh, and, and indeed, in the uh, International Convention on State Sovereignty, it goes through a number of grounds, again, both broader than the responsibility to protect. So this idea that it's it's a license, yes, it specifies when we can intervene, but it's also a leash. It's narrower than powers unfettered by law were appropriating for themselves. So I'm I'm gonna emphasize that as something I think is a real contribution for how we should understand uh, R2P. And then the value of of situating this doctrine in really 150 plus years of history, uh, going back to Mill, that's not just because Mill is a great political philosopher and thinker, it's because it shows you that this doctrine is not the knee-jerk reaction of people like me. Uh, which is all too often how it's assumed to be. Uh, And never have I liked my last name less. Uh, And all the way through the book, you kept talking about mass slaughters. And I thought, really? Really? Uh, But the point is, this is a really hard question. And it's a really hard question for people who are committed to order and law. It is not about bleeding hearts, uh, and it's not about a kind of sure, we should be able to use force whenever. It's a difficult question for people who start out with a presumption of non-intervention as well as people who might start out with a presumption of greater intervention. So that's also uh, uh, very helpful. And, and looking at the historical record itself, uh, just the the empirical work, very much uh, as the work you did on the democratic Peace, I find to be uh, valuable, although I'm going to question it. Last thing I really do like about the book is it does pay deep attention from the beginning all the way through to the end of you cannot think about this just as the action. You must think about this in terms of the consequences, the longer term consequences. And Michael, the last chapter is all about what is the duty to, uh, if you're going to intervene, what is your obligation for post-conflict reconstruction? Uh, Which, again, I'm going to question that in a minute, but uh, it it has to be part of the equation. Uh, Otherwise, we, we end up quite disastrously. So those are the the number of things I like about the book. Just a couple of of, um, uh, things that that I I disagree with, and and one in particular that I'm going to emphasize emphasize on page 48, um, sort of in talking about the Uh, value of intervention, how do we assess the value? How do we say it was successful? And you say, well, we can't just say it's democratization, and I certainly agree with that. Uh, I don't think democratization is really the right measure at all, because I don't think we should be intervening to create democracy. Uh, I'm I'm squarely on the ground that we should be intervening only for the kind of humanitarian principles that the responsibility to protect lays out. Uh, and then, But then as you, you go on um, talking about, you know, ending the killings, uh, and then you say the problem, of course, is measuring the real concern, shortened lives reliably across history uh, is difficult while also incorporating an assessment of the human costs of oppressive government. Call me an American. There are things more important than life. Uh, i really I would question I, I disagree with thinking that the value here is just shortened lives There things you know in other words you could you could intervene in a way that might have the same numbers of shortened lives than if you 'd not intervened, and yet the people who died in the consequence would in fact have their successors would have better lives so that 's something at least when I read it i just it it, I, it struck me as something I, 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 I very much um, disagree with as I have characterized it. it may, you may have meant it in a different way. Uh, and uh, so, then things I question. They're, they're, so the first point is, you do go back, as you say, uh, to uh, 18, um, I think you, in, your, in the, the empirical, you go back uh, to 1815. But isn't the post-45 record considerably better? And the post-45 record is the post the record in which we have in many cases had some kind of multilateral authorization. Uh, But the the successful examples you cite: Germany, Japan, Kosovo, East Timor, uh, and a couple of others, those are all post-45. So I question whether we really should say, you know, most have been unsuccessful when, as you say, a lot of them were. Colonialist interventions; they were still in an era of empire. So I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, I agree with with uh, how you characterize success. Uh, whether there isn't a step change uh, after 1945. Uh, another small question: You so the responsibility to protect says you can intervene where there is genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and what am I leaving out? and ethnic cleansing. It's just a question. I thought it was systematic war crimes. I mean, I, I, it, war crimes, we we all commit war crimes. Uh, and Many of us have systems of justice to deal with them. But it was just a question, do we really just want to say war crimes and shouldn't? I thought it had, was narrower than that. Uh, but if not, shouldn't it be? And the last thing I will question before I go to what's missing is um, – so, I do, I like the fact that you focus on consequences and particularly sus- that really, if you're going to intervene, uh, the obligation to rebuild. But the consequence of too much Colin Powell, the pottery barn rule, would have been very, it, we should have paid far more attention to it in Iraq. He tried. I overall accept it, but I really question the the danger of a doctrine that insists on a kind of clarity and certainty that simply does not obtain in international relations. And so I'll just say with Syria, this is the issue. There is no good response. There is no. There are no good choices. There are only bad choices. In 2012, when many of us started calling for intervention, there were better choices. There was not al-Nusra, there was not ISIS, the Free Syrian Army actually existed, there were moderates, there were lots of things you could have done uh, in the uh, February of 2012 that I think would arguably have put you in a far better position than you are today. But if the criteria was what's going to happen and how are we going to rebuild Syria, you don't act. And so you're building in a bias for inaction that is precisely what this president has in this setting, because Iraq is his benchmark. And so unless you can tell him exactly how it's going to work out, he's not going to move. And yet, in some, there, we don't have a crystal ball. And the great decisions to intervene in history that have actually worked have often been somebody had to say, Secretary Clinton often says, I'd rather get caught trying. Now, I would not say that in every case, and you lay out lots of very good calculations you have to make, but when you really come down to that setting that says, we have no idea, it's really bad whichever way we look, I I question that you're building in, as I said, a bias toward inaction. Okay, uh, things that are missing, and then I'll end with what I think is most, most important. Uh, and these are, you know, this is... It's a short book, and it's valuable as a short book, Uh, and I'm currently writing a book based on a set of lectures as well, and there's a real value to not including all these things, but I'd like to to hear your thoughts. So one are rules about regional intervention first, that we're never going to get to where we need to go with the current system in the Security Council. We just won't. Uh, it is uh it is too illegitimate for too many parts of the world uh and so what what is evolving arguably is you must have multilateral authorization but it can be done by a regional organization first and then you go to the security council that's the kosovo model uh that and it could have been the libya model in the sense that once the uh organization of islamic uh the the Islamic conference uh, and the Gulf Cooperation Council approved you had something you cannot act unilaterally but what but could you do it that way possibility the french have talked about in circumstances of profound Uh, war crimes, systematic war crimes, I'd be willing to say genocide or profound crimes against humanity. I'd be willing to limit it even further. The veto uh, should be suspended. And and are you thinking about ways of customary practice to moderate the current system, which as you point out, is still primarily entirely focused on sovereignty with R2P and some state practice changing that slowly. Um, The third thing, no mention or have you thought about better use of international justice processes as a form of early intervention. So here I have in mind applying the standards of international justice to individuals, perpetrators, uh, in, in cases of, of genocide, gross crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, uh, and is it possible to think about limited interventions in the service of international justice, something we talked a lot about in the 1990s, uh, less so now. Uh, And finally, the question of have we given enough thought or something that is missing, but I'm wondering if you thought about intervening against the means of perpetrating these crimes. So I very much agree with you and thought even after we started intervening in Libya, I thought it was a real mistake to move to regime change. I wrote a piece a month after we intervened in Libya that said we should cut a deal with Gaddafi now because we're flooding the zone with small arms and we know that is going to be bad uh, for whatever happens. Uh, So we don't want to intervene for regime change. We want to intervene to stop the atrocities, to stop the genocide, to stop the crimes against humanity, to stop the ethnic cleansing or systematic war crimes. We typically think of doing that by defeating or otherwise... Uh, uh, attacking the perpetrators. But what if we simply focused on attacking the means of perpetration? And here in the Syria example, this is the example of bombing Assad's fixed air force, fixed or or, or a rotary wing, to stop him from dropping b- b- barrel bombs on his people. Uh, and is, that, uh, is there a way that we can craft the doctrine to say, look, you know, you, you can win. If this is a civil war, it certainly is one now. It wasn't to begin with. We are not going to say who should win, but we are going to tell you only, you can only fight in certain ways. And we're going to stop you from fighting in manifestly uh, 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 Ill- illegal ways. In Rwanda, that would have been harder. You couldn't have, you know, bombed people with machetes. But there again, a very limited use of force might have made a difference. All right. Let me conclude um, Talking about you know what I like, what I dislike, what I question, what I think is missing. Let me come back to what I think is most important. And the first thing I will say again is this license and leash framework is, is just enormously valuable and should be exactly the way we think about it going forward. Uh, I would say the other the that also says it's a license for non forcible parts of intervention, which is something the R2P uh, proponents have emphasized that we should be putting much more in before conflict breaks out or early on in conflicts. Uh, and this license idea is very helpful there. But the leash idea is equally important. Uh, so I want to emphasize how much I like that again. But let me then conclude with Something you say early on but don't come back to, but I found enormously important and maybe particularly important in this setting, which is the um, value of R2P as a precedent, as a possibility. And so you say on page 125, you're talking about where, in fact, R2P has worked. And you say, you talk about Kenya in the riots in 2008 and Guinea. In 2009, uh, these were both uh, cases in which uh, there had been an outbreak of violence, uh, riots, uh, uh, and a a possible uh, coup. And you say in both cases, these crises were shaped by R2P, but implicitly, not explicitly. This indeed might be the doctrine's strongest claim. It provides an option whose mere existence encourages consensual resolution of crises. In other words, because governments thought we might come in, diplomats had far more leverage. And this is where I want to end. This is is how this debate should actually be framed. Again, it should not be libertarians, I'm here in the Cato Institute, versus liberal interventionists, which I am often caricatured as. That is not the right frame. The right frame is how to minimize conflict and maximize both order and liberty. And the question then is, when does diplomacy work best? And when, by exercising force judiciously, or by, by standing up to a tyrant, do we then create a precedent that operates, in the, as we do in the domestic system, to shape all future bargaining from the shadow of the past? It's the reversal of bargaining in the shadow of the future. It's that diplomatic bargains take place knowing that we will use force if we have to. And that is my indictment of this administration right now in Syria and, frankly, in Ukraine. We've essentially told Russia, we will not use force. Under any circumstances, we will not use force. That, to me, is a way of disarming our diplomacy. So it's not that I want us to use force all the time. It's that without that willingness to do so and actual doing so occasionally, we deprive ourselves of the means to actually use non forcible means more effectively. So I, I, I urge you to, to highlight that part of the, of the book. It's very important. It may have got it got derailed by Libya, but I'll end here. I'm an international lawyer at heart we think in terms of centuries, uh, certainly decades and centuries. Remember, you know, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was passed in 1949. We didn't even get a treaty till 1966. Jimmy Carter, it was never mentioned in U.S. foreign policy till 1976, and we're still working that out. So um, that idea that it is part of the arsenal of effective diplomacy is one uh, that uh, may take a long time to prove, but is just as important as its actual individual case thank you very much
3: well thank you I I first want to thank Brad for organizing this forum and for inviting me to speak and um, uh, I'll confess that the invitation compelled me to read a book that I might otherwise have missed I I frankly frequently I frequently only read books that I'm required to read um, and And so I want to thank Michael. I want to thank Michael for writing for being here, obviously, and, and for writing this excellent book, because um, I learned a lot. It really made me think, uh, and it provides a really rich topic for discussion, obviously, not just here, uh, but I think for a long time. The book includes a full text of John Stuart Mill's essay, A Few Words on Non-intervention, Michael mentioned it. Uh, I read it and reread it, all of it. Uh, I had actually only read passages before. Uh, I know that everyone here uh, at the, in the Hayek Auditorium is going to buy the book, uh, and it's in the book. Uh, but for those of you who are watching online, uh, portions of the essay are now available online at libertarianism.org, and the full text is available at the online Library of Liberty, among other places. I want to spend just a bit of time today on Mill. And I'm actually going to quote a few passages directly. Uh, Michael made a reference to a few uh, passages, but more kind of paraphrasing. And I think in a few places, I will admit a few places, Mill's 19th century prose is a little tough sledding, but but not not as much as you might expect. So he starts the essay uh, with a presumption of disinterest on the part of a country in Europe, unnamed, He spells out this country's characteristics. No country apprehends from it any aggressive designs. Any attempt it makes to exert influence over other nations, even by persuasion, is rather in the service of others, not of itself than of itself. Not only does this nation desire no benefit to itself at the expense of others, it desires none in which all others do not as freely participate. Whatever it demands of itself, It demands for all mankind. Of course, the country in question was was, uh, Great Britain, but I would submit that this is a lot how US foreign policy operates today, or at least how U.S. foreign policy makers and U.S. foreign policy elites talk about this country's foreign policy. These same principles, so the conventional wisdom says, explain the occasions for when and whether the United States resorts to the use of force or, as Anne-Marie just said, the threat to use force to back up our diplomacy. Um, and by, those, by this conventional wisdom, no legitimate critique of U.S. foreign policy can ever ascribe to us aggressive designs. We always act in the service of others. We hold ourselves out to the same standard we hold everyone else. This is, this is the mantra, right, here in Washington. And we've all quoted Colin Powell. I'm going to quote him a couple times. And, and so this is what he said, famous line, World Economic Forum, January 2003, the war in Iraq is practically imminent. And this is what he said. Our record of living our values and letting our values be an inspiration to others, I think, is clear. And then he said, quote, we have gone forth from our shores repeatedly over the last hundred years and put wonderful young men and women at risk, many of whom have lost their lives and we have asked for nothing except enough ground, to bury them in. Now, I'll tell you quickly, as I was preparing for my remarks, I googled this quote saying, I seem to remember him saying this. It was, after all, 13 years ago. And, and not only did he say this, but it's become something of, the, of an urban legend about what he said and the context in which he said it. And, and people who are fans of this principle, all we ask is that we have enough land to bury our dead. They love quoting this line. Right, so this is the mantra, this is the idea. So if you think, or if you thought, that Mill's ideas on intervention from the mid-19th century are no longer relevant in the early 21st or that they only applied to Great Britain and Pax Britannica but not the United States and Pax Americana, think again. And under Pax Americana as under Pax Britannica, self-interest is particularly despised. This is what Mill says. He takes aim at those, I guess he was talking about Palmerston, right, yeah. He takes aim at those who, when presented with an argument for foreign intervention, would invoke, quote, this shabby refrain, we do not interfere because no English interests are involved. We ought not to interfere where no English interest is concerned. Replace English with American, and the right honorable Mr. Mill might be speaking of me, or people like me. Of all attitudes, he writes, which a nation can take up on the subject of intervention. The meanest and worst is to profess that it interferes only when it can serve its own objects by it. Now of course, These same principles of non-interference do not apply when the nation's safety or its interests are endangered, but Mill implied, England was different. It held itself to a higher standard. And so too, I submit, do most American policymakers today. The US role in the world is not merely to advance the safety and security of Americans, but also the interest and well-being of mankind. To proclaim that self-interest should guide the conduct of US foreign policy would be tantamount to rejecting American exceptionalism in some circles. Uh, or at least how we define it today. But of course, the United States does not always intervene on behalf of others. And I think that the criteria explaining why we do and when we do are a little murky. And so that is why I think this book and this essay are so important. So let's think about this for a little bit. To what extent are America's actions, U.S. foreign policy makers' actions, informed by Mill's thoughts on intervention, probably subconsciously? And to what extent should they be? Mill much preferred uh, intervention on behalf of those in arms for liberty, on behalf of liberty, and in a similar vein, he thought it unjust to support governments who are actively thwarting liberty. What my colleagues, Ted Galen Carpenter and Malunas, refer to as America's dubious partners. This is what Mill said. A government which needs foreign support to enforce obedience of its own citizens is one which ought not exist. And the assistance given to it by foreigners is hardly ever anything but the sympathy of one despotism over another. Well, I think we can all know what John Stuart Mill would have said about the United States' support for the rulers of Saudi Arabia today. And I'm guessing that he would be equally skeptical of the U.S. government's decision to install the Shah of Iran in power in 1953 and to keep him there for decades during the Cold War. Then there are the cases involving a people attempting to throw off the yoke of an indigenous government, a government comprised entirely of the people of that same country, not a foreign occupier. That's different. Say, for example, Iraqis struggling under the oppression of Saddam Hussein's tyranny. Was it just, according to Mill, to intervene in such cases? He concludes, as a general rule, no. And this is what he writes. And this is the passage that I had read before, and you probably heard it before. But listen. If a people does not value liberty sufficiently to fight for it and maintain it against any force which can be mustered within the country... It is only a question of a few years or months that people will be enslaved. Men become attached to that which they have long fought for and made sacrifices for. And a contest in which many have been called on to devote themselves for their country is a school in which they learn to value their country interests above their own. Mill reiterates the exceptions to the norm of non-intervention as always, cases of self-defense. And also intervention on behalf of foreign peoples held in subjugation by another third party. If liberating these people struggling against a foreign yoke would restore the balance of liberty and in favor of another of Mill's key principles, which is self-determination, then foreign intervention might be warranted. But then he says, and this is where I'm going to focus the rest of my comments today, intervention to enforce non-intervention is always rightful, always moral, If not always prudent, and my emphasis, prudent, when does prudence apply? The question goes well beyond wars of liberation, and we've already talked about it. We have a human rights norm today, thankfully, Uh, and we should expand the definition of legitimate rationales for the use of force beyond Mill's uh, 19th century conception to the present day. In the preface of the book, Michael reminds us of the consequentialist character of the ethics of both non-intervention and intervention. And later he writes, citing, uh, echoing Mill, not every oppressive abuse that justifies a rebellion by locals justifies an intervention by foreigners. Humanitarian duties are contextual, and self-determination constrains humanitarian concerns but another way no one should expect the united states or any other country to gravely endanger its own national security in the service of humanitarian principles such self-interested concerns aren't as mill sneered meanest and worst of all attitudes it's just common sense right it's not realistic to expect a government That is empowered with specific rights and responsibilities to its citizens to endanger the security of its own citizens in the interest of a humanitarian concern that does not engage in self interest. So I think right away you can see how those set of criteria would, in fact, narrow the range of legitimate interventions, perhaps quite considerably. And I think. Michael, in his comments, and mostly in his book, does focus primarily on what is permissible under international law, whether to intervene by force in the internal affairs of another state. Um, but I think that we have to judge interventions. I think this gets to a little bit about what Anne-Marie said. We do have to try to, adjust, to, to assess interventions after the fact. Um, did they actually advance the cause of universal human rights? Did the intervention bestow upon some number of people the ability to govern themselves? And if it afforded them that chance, but they ultimately failed to do so, is that the fault of the intervener or of those who intervened on their behalf? We've already talked about this. Michael, uh, he does a service that Mill never could, and and his his research assistant, Mill didn't have... uh, you know, statistical sampling techniques and all that. So he reminds us uh, in the book, he mentioned it, on the basis of hard evidence that very few liberal-led foreign interventions, less than one in five, have delivered the benefits intended. The remaining cases lapsed back into civil war, a deepened autocracy, or imperial rule. And as Anne Marie noted, but wait a minute, what about the cases since 1945? I still think it's true, even among supporters of nation-building, such as uh, the Rand Corporation did a study on this, more than half since 1945 have failed a majority fail. And the successful ones, equally important, the successful ones have often entailed considerable costs and risks on the part of the intervener, particularly if the intervention including a lengthy included a lengthy post-conflict occupation, which under modern norms it must. And again, we've all invoked Colin Powell. It, Michael did it. Ann Marie did it. I'm going to do it again. Why did Colin Powell invoke the Pottery Barn Principle? And, of course, in defense of Pottery Barn, they don't even have, you know, you know the whole story. They don't even have this principle. Um, he said, it, why was he doing this? He was doing it to try to convince George W. Bush not to attack Iraq. So he was doing it for exactly the reasons that Anne Marie says, is that if you go into a war with the expectation that the, the hard part is what happens after the guy is killed or flees, then it's going to make you less likely to intervene. That's exactly what he was doing. We know exactly what he was doing. And ultimately, it failed. Which brings us to the two most recent cases, that of the U.S. intervention in Libya in 2011 and the non-intervention in Syria, which fairly enough started in earnest after 2012. But of course, the precipitating events were exactly the same time as, as in Libya or Egypt. In the other cases, the start of the Syrian civil war was 2011, right? the start of the uprising against Assad's government. So here's where i would take issue gently, I hope, with Michael's contention in the book, that as of late 2012, the record in, uh, the record on the Libyan intervention was mixed. Uh, I disagree. Michael, uh, in his remarks today, seems to agree. Um, the record isn't mixed. It's not mixed. The Libyan intervention was a disaster. And and don't just take my words for it. Christopher Chivas from the Rand Corporation, who was a supporter of the intervention, I, I didn't do this on purpose, I swear, um, In my email box this morning was an email with the headline from Christopher Chivas, use force to forge peace in Libya. The U.S. and its allies need to step in to help restore Libyan sovereignty. Five years after the fact. There we have it. Um, So it's a mess. Now, in fairness... The fact that Libya is an utter disaster in February 2016 doesn't necessarily mean that the intervention five years ago was neither permissible nor just. In many respects, as Michael points out, it's more legal under international law because it did at least have UN Security Council authorization, although I would note, as a good libertarian at the Cato Institute, that it was not more legal under US law because, of course, the Congress didn't authorize the use of force. Eh, there's that. Sorry, it's what I do. But I think what happened in Libya does validate the concerns expressed not merely by my colleagues and I here at Cato, but also the likes of Joe Biden, Robert Gates, nearly every senior military officer at the time, that the intervention was unwise. It was unlikely, they said, to achieve its stated goals, protecting human lives at reasonable cost, and it was inconsistent with U.S. national security interests. A few even warned, presciently, although tragically, that the chaos that was likely to ensue after Gaddafi's ouster would harm U.S. interests and even threaten U.S. security. And so it has. Thankfully, uh, Libya is unlikely to be the last word on the wisdom or folly of intervention writ large, and therefore we can be grateful to Michael for exploring these questions in such a rich way. Um, again, I want to reiterate I thank him for writing this book and for visiting Cato. Um, thanks also to Anne Marie for visiting. I'm looking forward to the ensuing discussion and thank you all very much for coming today. Thank
0: you, Chris. Thank you, Anne Marie. Um, Seven. Would you like to respond to the uh, discussions before we turn it over to the audience?
1: Sure, I'll do so very briefly because I want to hear from the audience. But the response, the comments that I was given reflected Mm -hmm. such a careful reading of the book and such a sympathetic yet critical approach to it that I would be ungrateful if I didn't try to respond to some of the excellent remarks. Uh, On Anne-Marie's points, um, you talk about a, a bias... My const- uh, construction of bias to inaction. The
2: danger
1: of. Guilty as charged. That's, <laughs> that, that, is, that is what I am trying to create. I'm trying to say to have intervention, we need to assume that the interveners have to put some really good arguments forward, that it's definitely necessary in this case for humanitarian reasons, for self-determination or national security, has to be made. And the liability to make the cases on them rather than on those who would say not intervene. And I would argue that we can come up with a lot of reasons in law and history, and the million argument provides us some, an ethical foundation for that bias, but it's not 100%. And there are reasons where we will intervene, should intervene. And there are are a number of them for the sake of, again, humanitarian protection, national security, or to advance self-determination, to free a people being oppressed, who can then viably establish their their own society. You went on to make some really good points about four things that are missing. Um, On some of them, they're missing, first of all, because it was a short book. (laughs) That, that is certainly the case. As I get older, my books are getting shorter. Uh, and that's probably maybe a biological shrinking attention span. But it's also increasing sympathy for my readers over time. Uh, but they have been getting shorter. And this one is missing a lot of the good points that you put forward. If I did it all over again, I would say more about regional norms in default of Security Council approval. In a previous book that I wrote on preventive war, I attempted to deal with a bit of that, not altogether successfully, but had that in mind. But it'd be foolish for any author to assume that somebody uh, reading the current book has read your previous books. There's no reason why they would have. So it's certainly missing here. On the other measures, which I I like quite a bit on the on the role of the use of international justice as a response to R2P situations, intervening against the means, these are right on spot, very, very useful. Um, I I don't address them in any depth here uh, because I was looking at cross-border uses of armed force coming between a government and its citizens is my topic, and you're talking about measures short of that which I think that in almost all cases should be tried before the troops are sent. So I would just agree with both of those. International justice is very viable and and valuable. It's significant, for example, on Libya, that Resolution 1970, the one that preceded the Use of Force Resolution 1973, was unanimous. It was a judicial process that set up uh, creating a no-fly zone, limiting the means, and uh, launching an investigation to see whether Qaddafi and his team should be prosecuted. Luis Moreno-Ocampo, the ICC prosecutor, sent a team on the ground, and he felt uh, that he did have sufficient evidence that a prosecution could go forward against Gaddafi for both war crimes and crimes against humanity. You should definitely start there. On the means, they went for a no-fly zone as the first way, rather than an armed force. Um, And here we get to to Libya, some of the very good points that that, uh, Christopher Treble raised about uh, the Libyan uh, mess, which it certainly is today. I, I, I was not in the Security Council room when these decisions were made, but I've spoken to a number of the ambassadors who supported and opposed it. It was a very hard decision they made to Anne Marie's point, they were acutely conscious of the limitations of the information that was in their hands. US decision makers may have been better informed, but most of the members of the Security Council were not. They were struggling with an evolving situation of great lack of clarity. Uh, the reason why they moved was, was twofold to a decision. One, they had some evidence coming from Luis Moreno Ocampo about war crimes, crimes against humanity. Nowhere near the numbers that the rebels themselves were claiming. The rebels were greatly exaggerating crimes on the ground. We as Americans should be the first to acknowledge that rebels do that. If you remember the Boston massacre, uh, that's a good place to start with that regard. Uh, Rebels do that. But they knew that. They knew that. But they did have credible evidence coming from Luis Moreno Ocampo about real crimes being committed, in small numbers, but real. They were influenced as well by the looming danger toward Benghazi, given some rash and violent statements made by members of the Gaddafi regime. That had some influence, as it did on President Obama. The most influential thing for the the Security Council was the defections that were taking place of the government. When you're dealing with a government and minister after minister, ambassador after ambassador is bailing out saying that the regime that they had heretofore represented was a criminal regime, that has a weight on colleagues who are making these decisions, and it certainly did the Security Council. And so they moved under the view to stop the uh, the likely knock-on effects of Libya on Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere, a real concern. And they, what they saw was a looming massacre, potentially, in Benghazi. I think it was a honorable decision. In retrospect, when we look at Libya today, unfortunate. Uh, Libya is in a state of chaos. Um, There are parts of the country that could be taken over by the modern equivalent of ISIS. All the militias are fighting with each other, a serious problem. Uh, But when we look for the blame for that, part is the decision, perhaps. Though, again, I say that I think if I had been a member of the Security Council, I would have voted the same way the 10 who did vote, voted, uh, understanding it was a horribly grim decision and an uncertain one. But then the next steps were it was radically mismanaged. Uh, There was no real accountability after a blank check was written to NATO and and some of its supporters. And that had bad consequences for how it was managed. And then in the follow-up, there was a brief moment when the Libyans thought that they could form their own government. Uh, in late 2011, early 2012. It very quickly eroded, uh, partly due to outside forces running in there, searching for contracts, looking for allies. Any militia member who could claim himself to be a militia leader had a foreign power willing to back them up with cash, arms, and with the promise of oil and other contracts. Everything that was attempted to keep the country together was facing counter to that uh, a desire to pull it all apart for the sake of separate national interest from Africa, the Middle East and Europe and and elsewhere. It made it an impossible task and partly for those three reasons, the initial uncertainty, the way that it was conducted on the ground and the uh, follow up, the lack of a coherent peace building program, the country is what it is today, a very sad example of what Mill warned against when he looked at questions of intervention. I, I could say more there's was, there was a lot of rich comments in these in the questions and the, the comments that were made by both Christopher and Anne Marie I really appreciate your, your careful reading and I've got as you can see some good notes and I'll come back and think about this but I'm very interested in what your comments or questions might have for all of us thank you
0: okay so b- before we turn it over to the audience I think I'll use my privilege as moderator to ask one additional question mm. and uh, and this has to do with timing And uh, I think Anne-Marie kind of touched on this indirectly in her discussion of Syria. Uh, In your book on page 71, you quote Michael Walzer as saying, interveners should act only as a last resort after exploring peaceful resolution. But it seems that in many cases, the efficacy of intervention can depend crucially on how soon you go in. You know, in in Syria, we probably could have done a lot more good if we'd gone in in 2011 Mm -hmm. than if we tried to intervene now. Mm -hmm. So I'm just questioning you, uh, what are your thoughts on how you resolve that dilemma? Mm -hmm. Great.
1: I could give you a quick response now because uh, the last resort doesn't mean that you have to try everything in between. As I read it, the the doctrine of the last resort is you have to try everything that has a reasonable prospect of success. And so if if lesser measures uh, have a reasonable prospect of success, uh, you should go there simply because moving armies across territories can be very dangerous uh, with all the knock-on consequences we talked about. So if I, I phrased that in ways that led one to say that you have to try absolutely everything before you take the measures that you think are efficacious, it's poor drafting on my part, the idea, my understanding of the doctrine is that you should try every leisure, lesser measure that has a reasonable prospect of achieving the purpose before you go to the larger measures. And in some cases, a reasonable look at a crisis will say to you, the lesser measures will not work. We need to move to more substantial uh, actions. And as, you, as we've just discussed in the previous, from the previous commentators, an argument like that might be made about Syria. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I wish sometimes that we had taken advantage of the chemical weapons violations by uh, Assad to declare a no-fly zone then. It would have been a risky move, I understand, and I'm and and like this institution, I like the U.S. Constitution placing the responsibility <laughs> for war on the Congress. That was not an accidental decision in 1787, though we've much neglected it. But nonetheless, presidents under certain circumstances uh, also have national security responsibilities. And in retrospect, but it's only with hindsight. At the time, I, I didn't have that level of clarity. Um, I wish. President Obama had taken advantage of the manifest violation of chemical weapons by the Assad regime to declare a no-fly zone. It would have leveled the playing field in a way that might, might have advanced the negotiating agenda, which is essential for Syria. This is not a place where you want anyone to win a war, in my, in my particular view. Uh, And that might have been, in retrospect, a good outcome. But I can't claim to have understood that fully at the time.
0: Okay. Uh, We have about 10 minutes for uh, audience questions. Um, So please... uh Wait for the microphone before you answer your, ask your question for the benefit of those watching online. Uh, please identify yourself by name and affiliation. And since we've only got about nine minutes now left, uh, please state your question as concisely as possible so we can get to as many of you as possible. So why don't we start with you in the blue shirt.
4: Hi, Doug Brooks. Um- President Emeritus of the International Stability Operations Association, which represents the contractors that work in conflict, post-conflict, and disaster relief. Uh, It seems to me when we talk about the success and failure of uh, interventions, um, it seems more about technique often than it is about the actual decision to go in. And if you portray these decisions as very simple, clean, uh, surgical, It never happens that way. Um, I would always say security's 90% of the problem, 10% of the solution, but it's a long-term solution. So when we went into Bosnia, we went in on the assumption it's going to be fairly short, we're still there.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: Um, In Iraq, the assumption was we'll be, or the plan was to be out in six months, and of course, and that was ridiculous. Mm. Um, And and that contributed to the the disaster. It seems to me that when we make these decisions about, you know, it's beyond uh, just theoretical, it's like we have to think, if we're actually going to do this and plan on success, do we have to think in terms of decades rather than a few months?
1: A very quick response. I couldn't agree more to that comment. Uh, I'm hoping you're tempted to get the book. There's a chapter on peace building, which I recommend to you. Uh, one of the people for whom I learned the most about peace building is an American ambassador, who lives here in the suburbs named Bill Farrand, who was the supervisor in Birchco. And in my book, I recommend very strongly the book that he's written about Birchko, and he develops many of the same themes that you're talking about: how this is a long-term commitment, it has to be planned well. It has to be planned with the locals, not for them, if you're going to succeed, and it takes a real investment of time, energy, and unfortunately, sometimes lives. Um, how
0: about over here?
4: Joel Hetker, retired government. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Iran from 70 to 72. Uh, John Stuart Mill, he was appalled by the British intervention at the First Afghan War, 39 to 42, the Crimean War of 1855, the Anglo-Persian War of
5: 1856.
4: Hmm. How would he view uh, Darfur, what happened there, humanitarian crisis, or the civil strife in South Sudan, which has been pretty much uh, ended, I guess?
1: I think it's a really, really good question. He was, as you say, v- extremely suspect of these interventions and ongoing civil wars with, with uh, parties on each side, each of whom are claiming legitimacy. He thinks you're likely to get into more harm uh, than good. But he said there are some circumstances where, an, when, a, when a civil war just grinds on and on and neither side is likely to win, and instead all that you're seeing is ongoing uh, massacres of ordinary farmers, townsmen, men, women, children. Uh, under those circumstances, they, the presupposition against intervention has to be overridden. He talks about a, a little obscure case uh, that took place in Portugal, of all places, in 1846. But frankly, it was a very easy case for him because the mediation was relatively successfully done, they, and they pressured the sides to negotiate. He hadn't fully, in my view, absorbed the capacities for massacre that modern technology and organization and communications, even if it's only radio and machetes, as Ed marie mentioned a bit before, and also modern technology can bring to bear. And I think the, the level of sympathy he does express for extreme circumstances dealing with casualties would want to have Uh, some involvement in in Darfur and in South Sudan. In in Darfur, the key there would have been putting some pressure on the the central government to uh, stop some of those measures. How one would have persuaded the external members of the Security Council to do that, very difficult. It was hard just to get them to agree to a peacekeeping operation. Uh, But that would be one way to go, to put that kind of pressure on. Whether more would have been required after that unclear, South Sudan is so difficult uh, you know it 's so disappointed the hopes of those who tried to midwife its independence uh, for very good reasons by the split in the factions um, at, at this point. Um, I think outsiders and again i'm not i don 't have enough depth to say this with confidence, so with a complete lack of confidence, let me say that I would urge um, a non-intervention in in South Sudan at this time. Uh, The sides are so evenly divided um, that it's not clear what you would intervene for. There is grounds to try to continue diplomacy and whatever external pressure is possible. But I would urge outsiders to keep their troops from trying to coerce an outcome in South Sudan at this point. But I would be happy to be corrected, and I look forward to learning more in that particular case.
0: How about up here, two off the aisle.
5: Allison Neville-Morgan with the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Thank you all so much for this. Um, A few intersecting comments. Um, One, just two quick points of nuance, which I think are helpful, maybe stating the obvious. But um, just to say that R2P does have three pillars, and we're really talking about the last part of the third pillar, so there's lots of space for for conversation on the other aspects, Um, and with intervention as well, that there are a lot of other interventions short of actual military intervention that are worth exploring. I really do appreciate the emphasis on peace building. Um, I think that's that's so important, especially in terms of postbellum responsibilities of the intervener, um, but also just to say that peacebuilding offers sets of tools that are applicable before, during, and after a conflict, and that we really should avail ourselves to to the whole range of tools that are available, particularly short of um, military intervention. Um, and then just to say that you know, for a lot of, for me personally, and for a lot of folks, um, this question of military intervention is really like the last, you know, worst-case scenario. Um, and as folks have pointed out, really is the last resort option. Um, so just trying to do what we can short of having to encounter this question, which seems to unfortunately come up um, time and time again. I mean, there's really a lot of a lot of conversation right now about atrocities prevention and how are we looking upstream um, and, and kind of avoiding this question in its entirety. Um, and I think there's a real need to kind of expand the tools and resources available in that space
1: can I very quickly, I agree completely with those comments. Thank you very much. For those who, who might be watching the pillars that you're referring to, there are three pillars with R2P. The first pillar is the national responsibility to protect one's own citizens from war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, genocide. That's a national responsibility. The, and that's, it was a nice step forward that that, Would be fully acknowledged as something that was on the agenda of the Security Council and that was well established within international human rights law, highlighting these particular crimes and harms as a first responsibility of the state. The second pillar very very important is that the international community promises to provide assistance at the at the request and at with the acceptance of a country to better enable it to fulfill those responsibilities and that allows all of the room for Uh, preventive action, atrocity prevention. And that's a very, that's that's a strong commitment. That is not to sit on one's hands if a government needs help to prevent escalating conflicts, tension, et cetera, within its own country. And the third pillar is the enforcement pillar. And even that has many different forms to it. Some included that uh, Anne-Marie was talking about with prosecutions of individual leaders, economic sanctions. And at the end of that process, uh, the most extreme is the use of force cross-border when and in the rare circumstances necessary. But very important to emphasize the other pillars of the R2P doctrine. Uh, That's where a great deal more work needs to be done. Thank you.
2: Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I do. I want to talk about the last resort. I mean, the sort of everything, but because it it does bring us back to the to Syria as a uh, you know as an incredibly hard case. And Chris, you said you know it started at the same time. Actually, so in March of twenty eleven. The Libya case was already was ripe. I mean, in other words, the, 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 right. uh, that's exactly when, when the violence had already broken out. Gaddafi is already doing – his forces are already committing crimes, although Michael's right, they, they were a small scale. In March of, of 2011, the Syrian opposition started marching peacefully, right? And the initial march was triggered by the torture of 10-year-olds. Uh, starts marching peacefully for six months So for six months, the Syrian people went into the streets and were shot at by their government, and they did not shoot back. And then in October, October, November, some start shooting back, and there was a whole debate then within the, the Syrian opposition as to whether that should happen. So they start shooting back, and the government steps up. Uh, and starts uh, and it really starts massacring on a much larger scale. Uh, and by uh, February it's gone to the Security Council. So in February, you're looking at a case where you know that a government is perfectly willing to fire on unarmed people and to call them terrorists and to, and to do all sorts of things. Uh, and has already demonstrated it's not going to stop by international pressure. At that moment, and this is really, I think where it's so hard, I think an early demonstration of a a no-fly zone, which is what I call for, that says, no, we're going to step in to protect these people because you clearly will not, could have avoided a huge amount of later bloodshed uh, that then gets harder and harder. But from the point of view of trying everything else, or not everything else, Michael, but even things that might work, No, you know, then you start with diplomacy and then round and round and round. And so to me, you know, it's a question of what do you take? What what factors do you take into account in assessing what's likely to happen? Because as more people get killed, it gets harder and harder to stop others from shoot, you know, from responding. And then you you end up where we are now. Can I.
3: All right. So I want to pick up on this because it also relates to something you said, Emory, in your in your prepared remarks, which is so taking action against the means like the Syrian Air Force. By 2012, we have the makings of a civil war. You have uh, more than one side, ultimately, shooting, okay? This is a violent conflict. And therefore, taking action against the means does mean picking a side or pushing a side in a civil war. No. No?
2: No, I mean Because
3: the result of that, uh, so denuding the regime of its ability to, to attack its adversaries, uh, I'll, use that, I'll use that phrasing carefully, um, diminishes their ability to defend themselves, the, the regime, right? You increase the likelihood that the regime will be toppled. And then the next obvious question is, by whom or by what? Um, we didn't know the answer then. We still don't know the answer, although, and I think the fact that we think the answer isn't a very good one explains a lot of the reason why we haven't intervened,
2: but we are willing to do that on some means, right, so chemical weapons immediately, absolutely you know we will stop you from using those, and there you could say the same thing, well, you could say, well, they needed chemical weapons, that's how they were winning, and yet we uh, we say immediately, no, you can't fight that way, and we'll stop you and my proposition, and I take your point thus thus far. You don't take out his whole Air Force, because I agree, right? To do that, you're you're immediately then. But you you use force in a way that says, you keep doing this. You keep dropping barrel bombs on your people. And just think about what that really is. I mean, as between a chemical weapon and about barrel bomb, I'm not sure which way I want to die. But I think they're equally terrible. Uh, we say... We're, we understand that it is a civil war. Maybe it didn't have to be all that, but we are now in a place where it is. But the, if if responsibility to protect means anything, it is about how you fight, right? You can defeat opposition, but you may not kill a whole people. That's genocide. You may not commit crimes against humanity. You may not ethnically cleanse, and you may not commit war crimes. And so the, the, I don't think... I think you could have designed an intervention... That would have forced him to the table, and that's the last thing I'll say. Is this should never be in the absence of a diplomatic process. Michael and I completely agree that this is—you're not going to win in Syria. Never, you never were militarily. It's how do you combine the f- credible threat of force and diplomacy to to stop the fighting?
0: Well, Anne Marie, you'll be happy to know that you get their last word <laughs> because <laughs> we're out of time. Sorry. But uh, thank you all for. Uh, such an interesting discussion, Michael, Anne-Marie, Chris. Um, please join me in thanking our presenters. Thank you.